My name's Nasser. I'm a Ladbury critic, and I'm extremely nervous about this. So I hope you guys will be nice and friendly and generous. Um, thank you to our principal funder, the Arts Council of England, and thank you also to Russell and Co. for sponsoring this particular event. We're very grateful for your help and support. Um, I'd also like to thank all of the volunteers um, here at the Library Festival. Um, they've done a great job, made my time here really smooth. I'm sure I speak for everyone when I say that. Um, I changed the title of this event. Some of you may have noticed outside. Um, it did say, nothing can break my heart like England can. I'm shifting that ever so slightly to nothing can break my heart like English can. This is, we're going to take a slight detour. Um, and in order to think about that concept, um, I'm going to introduce our guests this afternoon. But let me also thank Stephanie Sakia in particular for inviting me and for curating much of what you've been experiencing here at the Library Poetry Festival. She's done a great job. Well done. It's, it's a real honor to be here. So uh, I'll introduce him in turn. Um, Zafar Kunial is one of our most prominent poets. He is the author of Us, Six, and England's Green, all Faber publications from 2018 to 2022. Um, his work has garnered recognition from every major UK poetry prize and several international ones, I believe. Um, He's held important residencies, um, including serving as the Douglas Castor Fellow at Leeds University and at the Bronte Parsonage Museum, and is a current holder of one of Yale's, uh, Yale University's Wyndham Campbell Prizes for 2022, I believe. Um, Pretty Tanesia is a, a writer and literary activist. Um, she's given us a representation of King Lear set in contemporary India in her novel, We That Are Young, uh, from 2017. Highly recommend it. Books are on sale. Buy books. Uh, and Aftermath, which won the Gordon Byrne Prize for its fearless ambition and execution. Um, Aftermath is a... A book that defies easy categorization, um, and, but it will feature prominently in our conversation today. She is professor of world literature and creative writing at Newcastle University and is a recipient of the Leverhulme Prize and is a BBC Next Generation thinker. And before I go on, it is easy to let these biographies slide in a frame such as this, but I'd like to suggest that I'm not engaging in what a dear friend of mine refers to as a carousel of puffery, but I am instead trying to signal that doctors Kuniel and Tanesia know what they're talking about, and that we should listen carefully, generously, sensitively, and critically. This is a learning experience. I'm here to learn, and I hope you are too. The structure is gonna be very straightforward. We have an hour, I believe, five o'clock, okay. I'm going to invite our guests to read from their work. We're gonna showcase that first. This is the active listening part. You have to concentrate at this point. <laughs> Take notes if you must. We will then discuss some of the ideas that emerge from these selections, um, particularly around this idea of the English language. Uh, and then, we, if there is time, I'll throw some questions out. I'll throw some time out to the audience. But without further ado, um, please welcome Zafar Kuniel. Ledbury and thanks Stephanie for having us and um, um, 
Actually, it's, it's special for me to be in Ledbury because uh, I did my first proper poetry reading on this stage. And I was saying earlier on, it felt like a bigger building somehow. Uh, <laughs> not that it isn't big enough, but um, it's, uh, yeah, I, I got a third prize in the National Poetry Competition back in the, the ancient years of 2011 or 12, I think. And, and I read one poem then, and that was the first time I'd read a poem. And, in, and then the next time was here and had to read more than one poem. And remember how nerve-wracking that was. Um, anyway... But also, my, my mother left Birmingham and came to Herefordshire towards the end of her life. And uh, so, it's, yeah, it's really nice for me to... She's buried about 20 minutes' drive away from here. So, yes, yeah, great to be here. Um, so, I'm going to read the first poem in England's Green, which is called uh, Boxglove Country. And um, I suppose it, it looks at the middle of a word in a way and and I yeah so it's nice to read it in the Midlands Foxglove Country Sometimes I like to hide in the word Foxgloves in the middle of Foxgloves the exgla is hard to say out of the England of its harbouring word alone it becomes a small tangle a witch's thimble, hard to toll, bell, elvish door to a door, exgla, a place with a locked beginning, then a snag, a gla, like the little Englands of my grief, a knotted dark that locks light in glisten, glow, glint, gleam, and Oberon's banks of Eglantine which closes in on the opening of Gulliver, whose shrunken gull says rose in my fatherland. Meanwhile, in the motherland, the ex-g is almost the thumb of a lost mitten, an impossible interior, deeper than forests and further in, and deeper inland is the gulp, the gulf, the gap, the grip, that goes before love. Um, and yeah, and the, the inland uh, is almost hinted at in the, in the title England's Green. And there's lots about the, the li little word in. And um, I may perhaps talk about that late, later on. Uh, um, and the green means lots of things as well. Um, I suppose green can mean young. And it can mean old. And, um, but I will read a poem. Uh, uh, I'm going to read for about 15 minutes or so before our discussion. Um, I, keep seeing, I kept seeing butterflies when we got out of the car. And so I'm going, I'm going to take the hint. And I'm going to read one called Thinnings, which is kind of... I suppose they're like, I won't say they're haiku, but they take the syllabic form of haikus. Uh, and they, they, they have a kind of rhyming scheme, which is even more wrong in a way. Uh, but they, they, the rhyme is kind of in and er. It, I mess around with that a little bit, but it's vaguely in and er. And so you get kind of the word inner at the back of these poems. And... Th and I suppose the insect population is thinning, and it's, there's a phrase for it, the great thinning. But also I was thinking about the idea of if what goes on, which is a similar word to in, and the idea of you know, us thinning. And um, you, you were mentioning about the, where I have a, a copy of my mum's book, which I underline, which is Iris Murdoch. And I've lost some of these books now, but she, she, um, she used to like Iris Murdoch when she was younger and um, yeah, she, she, she underlined uh, a bit where a character called Rainborough wa watched this butterfly for a moment or two and then he ground it under his heel Thinnings Moonlit dust gather with each moat death's weight, tank wing make off small mother Mute sunbird Living gerund, 
stemless flowering, soul thing, thinning. In weeping willow, wood leopard, black and white, unreadable as air. Holly blue, margin haunter, through life's sharp hedge, your thin flame keeps going. Clouded yellow, blur in the laburnum, old dim light, I remember. Blotched emerald, there, past the hospital curtain, far off, off kilter. Green hair streak hovers, mum waves a gift, found again, my four-leaf clover. Through pockets of air, that sheer see-through magician, here, gone, small copper. Nettles, willow, elm, in hops, on rocks, walls, comma, don't stop, carry on. By the grave, a new satin beauty is leaving the thicket of you. Um, and you, you wanted me to read the, the First World War poem I have here? If you don't. Okay. I do a little bit, but I'm going to read it anyway. Um, <laughs> I'm joking. Um, okay, uh, it's just a long poem. Um, uh, yeah, it's, it's a long poem where the cenotaph becomes a kind of first-person pronoun, I. Um, and it's called Bascot Heath Long Itchington, which is um, where some of my great-grandfather's family are from, which is in Warwickshire, South Warwickshire. I see, this is the shape remembrance takes. To get it, the scale had to be brought home. Picture the dead moving in one long, continuous column, four abreast, as the column's head reaches the cenotaph, the last four men would be in Durham. In India, that column would stretch from Lahore to Delhi. Whichever the country, it would take three and a half days, that snaking march, before the tail of the march caught up with the head. These are all the, the dead of the First World War. Somewhere on the way, you'd find two who share a strand of my DNA. So here I am, standing at the cenotaph, a century on, the centre of London. To my eyes, this column seems made of limestone, dense skeletal fragments of coral and shell. Returning to that long, imagined march, you'd be somewhere in the Midlands, I'd guess, between London and Durham, perhaps Bascot, where you... Lance Corporal Albert Ebbets of the Royal Warwickshires were born, born in Basket, killed near Basra and unburied, like your son, killed somewhere at the Somme, Private Roland Ebbets of that 1st Battalion, which braved no man's land in the Christmas truce. Who knew? In your local church I found you, on opposed pages in a memorial book. I first spotted your names behind the altar in Long Itchington. I'd gone to Warwickshire for graves, armed with my mother's maiden name. Three and a half football teams, someone has added in Blue Barrow. Now, in London, what I'm reading doesn't say much. But this isn't weathering where soft limestone loses letters or mosses names. It wants to be plain. The glorious dead, repeated either side, and all else is blank, but for Roman numerals, your upright coffin. I see the whole thing as a numeral now, one, I, call it what you will, this upright cenotaph, on the 1911 census, I found you both under one roof, father and son, limestone quarrymen. I see you, arms raised in unison, hacking down at the stone, driving a wedge into the slab. Now and now, on this curbed island, I've been here for two hours, moved and fixed as a capital's traffic passed. I've heard the 
bells of Big Ben twice. I want to cross over to home in on the peak of your empty tomb. But cars and cabs strand me for now, a long way from where you set out, at this stone column that stands for you, this I that I've been stood here speaking to. Um, check my time. Um, you know, I suppose uh, the word in be- begins with, with the same I in a way. Um, and I have a poem across the page called uh, Ings, um, which I, I'd like to read, but it's, it's a bit long, so I won't. But it's like a prose poem, and every paragraph ends with the sound ing. Um, uh, so like, you know, like a word like in, enduring, and I'm fascinated by how the, this ing makes things carry on and not stop. And that just that guh sound on the end of an in can make, you know, spring has that, doesn't it? It kind of makes things carry on. And in a weird way, England has it. And so I suppose you could relate that to the idea of the butterflies as well in the Thinnings poem. And almost like the ing is the soul of, of a word. Um, so I, I... And I have the, some poems about the, the Brontes sisters who... who because so I now live in Bronte country, so six miles away, and and I'm fascinated by that as well. How you know it's called Bronte country, and and um, and they were originally Prontes, you know, from Ireland, and no one thinks about really that they're half Irish. And I, I, I get seen as being mixed heritage, and I tell people I am as well. And but but they're mixed heritage, and um, but and I also I, I don't think it, it would be called Pronty country if the Patrick. Bronte hadn't rebranded them as Bronte, you know, and, and it's, I'm fascinated by little letters and how a small change in letter can change the whole country we're in or something. Um, so I, 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 will, I, I will read what one of the, you were saying, what, it was a little book poem that you wanted me to read, Nasser, wasn't it? So, um, I, yeah, yeah, part two, if, if you don't want to do all three, part two would be great. Part two, okay. Um, so this is based on a little ad, ad in the back of uh, one of the tiny little books that Charlotte wrote, which she really wrote for, soul, for lead toy soldiers, and she imagined them as kind of magazines for them. And, and they're, they're slightly bigger than a matchbox, maybe, but, but small. And, and, um, and there, there was an, a little advert she put in the back, which I thought was really charming, which was, um, I'll read it out, six young men wish to let themselves out for hire, for the purpose of cleaning out pockets. They are in reduced circumstances. I really love that, reduced circumstances. And I imagine these little elves looking for a job. <clears throat> so it's called The Very Most Minute, or it could be The Very Most Minute. I read cleaning out in its helpful sense. Lint, sand, fluff. Words have pockets. Small, deep pockets that go on for ages. We put words on a page and they preserve infinitely more than we mean or guess. A word minute as in, it turns out, even the very most minute. We should advertise to sort out the mess. I see magnified elves in those reduced circumstances, working on next to nothing. The unseen impish stuff that can seed a new land, lint, sand, fluff. Um, and on the subject of kind of like letters, and um, there is a poem called Bron- Bronte Taxes as well, and there's an, there's an actual company called Bronte Taxes, and usually in them will be a Kashmiri driver, and my two half-brothers in Birmingham are ca- cab drivers as well. And... Um, Actually, I've just bought a new second-hand car, and it's a, a white Honda Civic, and it, it looks like a taxi driver's car, and I don't know why I've done that, but um, <laughs> it's true. Got black leather seats as well. Um, anyway, <clears throat> uh, The Wind in the Willows. So this has, um, this has two ins in it. And, well, you know, you think about changing the title from uh, England Always Breaks My Heart, like uh, I think... A, some people here will think that's about the ashes or something, but um, <laughs> anyway, uh, this has a mention of a cricket bat. 
Um, but really, this poem, boringly enough, is about poetry. The Wind in the Willows. Unread, the book was all shades of distance, but I knew the title, and the title stuck. Mossy cover, hazed interior, the species too. I'd say, if asked, it was my favourite kind of tree, though it was never with one certain tree in mind. There was a garden, I vaguely remember, the way the leaves curtained like shadows, a lit cave, a fringe, not yours, you could look through, and the wood that grew by flowing water carved cricket bats, which was a part of the little I also knew. Maybe it is all a little to do with letters too, the two tongueless trees of that printed double L, or the uncrowing tall Ws of the wind in the willows. Maybe it is all oral and echoed in, wind in, the open-mouthed billowy lows, maybe the leaf-fringed mystery between the two. And speaking of poetry, I had this initiating thought. In the flax-smelling grain of the first bat, I was gifted, wind was contained, old power locked, a gravity well beyond mine, light enough, slight arms could lift it, wind in willow, this percussive wood, a gathered strength, a mutual bind. Though I was far from writing, or this book, that sense, I suppose, in spirit, was poetry and early. The very last thing poetry is, is a poem. a slight technical difficulty here. Um, please welcome to the stage um, Dr. Preeti Tanesha, who will be reading from Aftermath. I can't, I can't see without my glasses. So. <laughs> um, okay, so first of all, I want to say thank you so much for coming to listen to me to talk about this book. Um, for those of you who don't know what it's about, um, just a short pricey. So some of you will remember that in 2019, there was an attack on London Bridge in which two young people were killed, Jack Merritt and Saskia Jones. The person who perpetrated that attack was a recently released man called Usman Khan, who had been incarcerated for around um, nine years, since he was 19 years old, for planning a terrorist attack. While in prison, he had taken part in a prison education program, and I taught him, and Jack was my colleague. So the book is really about that difficult knot of being involved in a very particular way, a very unique way, um, as a creative writing teacher with somebody who went on to commit great harm against somebody I knew. Um, I'm very aware that when I talk about this book and when I read from the book, there are people in the audience who have had run-ins with state violence, um, you may know someone who is incarcerated, um, you may have been a whistleblower in some way with institutional violence, and I'm very grateful for the community of listening and trust that we build together when we come together to think about these very difficult, complex and nuanced things which don't have enough air in our public life. NASA has kindly asked me to read from a part of the book called Citizenship and Politics, a post-colonial glossary. Um, I'm going to take you from the beauty and the gentleness and the compassion into, uh, of Zafar's work into political rage. Citizenship and politics, a post-colonial glossary. Citizens of the world see citizens of nowhere, Commonwealth citizens. The government of the Atro city has returned you, as, has returned you to dust, now your names will be lost. You live in the Atro city as funny tinge, as in, it is not just about being black or a funny tinge. You know, different. Be a uh, 
from the BME community. This is left-wing politician Angela Smith, who uses the word funny tinge to describe British-Asian Bengali journalist Ash Sarkar, the only person of colour on the live TV panel. Finally, you can stop calling yourself brown. You live in the aftermath of the war on terror, whose defining category is Muslim, whatever and however. In this context, the definition purposely seems to have no nuance, and that is its great strength for the definer, not the defined. It is primarily for you that the hostile environment comes into existence, a web of legislation that turns us all into police, making it impossible for people of minority origin to feel free. In fact, designed to make certain groups feel so unwelcome that they choose to exclude themselves. Everyday people check your right to study, right to rent, right to walk into a shop or airport or train station, or through a university lodge with a backpack on. The aim is to create, here in Britain, a really hostile environment for illegal immigrants and others, so Theresa May, then Home Secretary, later Prime Minister, said and did. In ideal terms for the fascist state, she wanted us to choose to go home, to permanently leave the UK, or choose not to try to come here at all. There are deportation flights and families being ripped apart. If people do live and stay, they are ferociously policed in the name of keeping the public safe by those who point away from themselves. They're the drug dealer, their stop and search, their bad faith, their, all of it, shades of darkness punishable with cultural silencing, a certain social narrative, police brutality, and eventually prison, and whatever they do inside. While outside the gates is a pernicious austerity, the end of shared social space, the defunding enclosure of our libraries, our social centres, our play spaces, our community, sports, an arid landscape in which the chance to create is hard won, made harder for citizens of nowhere slash Commonwealth citizens, my grandmother's life forfeit in partition, my mother in her womb. I know the state works to undermine communities' trust in each other and lead us in circles to a condition of permanent fear and harm and from there to radicalization. There are many theories about what radicalizes a mind. The word itself is malleable. The word is a curve as horizon and used within poetry, theory, resistance, ideology as violence for emancipation, for causing terror. See also terrorist. After 9-11, while the new state seeks only to prevent, as if there is no cure for the natural tendency towards violent annihilation, they want you to fear. You now have a statutory duty to report the Muslim man next to you and report on children, report on neighbours, the hospital, the school, the university, the HR department must report on anyone Muslim who is pro-Palestine, who makes you uncomfortable with apologies for the text as violence. Prevent, make civil society into border police, all of us are meant to police in case of something. There is much to understand about the danger-slash-safety binary, the wide definitions of radicalization and the climate of fear created and worked on within PREVENT. The argument is that it turns young people from terrorism before they become radicalized, but it has proved damaging, sowing distrust, disillusionment, and a dangerous isolation and affecting the opposite of what it says it wants to achieve. It has been discredited as Islamophobic. It has set up covert surveillance on young Muslims through youth radio projects, through art, through other social networks. A British Muslim child, four years old, talking about the wildly popular computer game Fortnite had been referred. Another four-year-old says cucumber. The nursery staff here cook a bomb and begin the process of referral. The Home Office says it has kept the public safe, but cases have been missed despite that, and we have seen now that people can play the system to mask radicalization while planning attacks. 
In 2020, William Shawcross, the former director of a neoconservative think tank and of the UK's Charity Commission, was appointed by the government to lead the Prevent strategy. The papers write him so. Under his tenure, the Charity Commission was accused of institutional bias against Muslims, while Muslim groups highlighted comments he had made in his book, Justice and the Enemy, which appeared to support the use of torture and the detention camp at Guantanamo Bay. They quote him, Europe and Islam is one of the greatest, most terrifying problems of our future. I think all European countries have a vastly, very quickly growing Islamic population. The climate of fear is in no way about to break. Its storm is let loose in the atro city, in the online words of powerful men. The viral load will take care of itself, as after the event, the government applied the same flawed reasoning about how to identify a would-be terrorist to a terrorist at risk of recidivism, as if their scant knowledge would prevent a bona fide terrorist-slash-terrorism. I know this word as certain men. I know this word is just a word. It has been understood by conservatives also as non-state political violence perpetrated naturally by people of color on the left. It has been reserved for Nelson Mandela and for South Africa's ANC, for Palestinian resistance to Israeli occupation, the Irish right to self-determination, black liberation movements, animal rights movements. The word is wide. It will swallow Black Lives Matter protesters, diaspora Sikhs, standing in solidarity with farmers in Punjab against the fascist Indian state, climate change activists, and what should we call men who commit violence from a place of ideology, right-wing fanatics, insurgents or extremists, starred lone wolves, see above. Counterterrorism. Will the tools of surveillance interrogate, in, interrogation, incarceration, based on the underlying assumptions of what a terrorist looks like. In short, they use their definition of the problem to try to fix the problem, making fear a ley line, making trust a power game, so easy to play double-blind, hard to believe in, desist and disengagement. Experience shows that many of those who are wedded to a political cause may never become totally disengaged, but may still make the decision to desist, they say, calling on culpability slash credibility. The event happens. It is reported. It has now become possible, one, that trained criminologists and policing authorities can believe that a terrorist with a complex prison history and a firm grip on his narrative arc has the inner strength even to desist, forget, disengage from the persuasion of violence when he says and shows what they hear and see regardless of that history, the law of the caliphate. Two, while authorities and senior editors at the New York Times will broadcast the voice and story of a Canadian man who says he was a terrorist, says he fought with ISIS in Syria, says he committed brutal violence and is now reformed and able to live a normal life among citizens in a flat above a shop. It is possible that those same experienced journalists and counterterrorism experts will win awards for their podcast, Caliphate, for their reportage. It is a fact that in December 2020, the paper will admit that this terrorist made up his whole story and was believed. The myth he made up was his own radicalization. Three, that when you find a book on countering radicalization through partnerships between London Muslim communities and the London Metropolitan Police by a man called Robert Lambert, published in 2011, you might find it useful. His authorial style is canonical. He writes about the draconian top-down policies of the state, which ignore and worsen grassroots realities. He writes against hate preacher Anjam Chowdhury, who, by then, has already converted the terrorist of this piece. He talks about anger, faith, and political violence on Britain's Islamophobic streets. <coughs> Research makes you go further, and you find that for years, 
Robert Lambert was a member of the special demonstration squad set up by police to gather undercover information on left-wing British protest groups, stop the Vietnam War, pro-Palestinian organizations, anti-apartheid activists, the Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament, CND, Labour MPs, which used the names and identities of 80 dead children as aliases for their operatives, which for years operated covert surveillance on the family of black teenager Stephen Lawrence, murdered in a racist attack in London in 1993 in an attempt to smear their campaign for justice and police accountability. Professor of Terrorism Studies Robert Lambert, MBE at the University of St Andrews, was once undercover to infiltrate an animal rights protest group. He had several relationships, one with a woman activist, and together they had a son. Then Lambert, or whatever name he went by, disappeared. Neither his partner nor son knew for decades that his identity was assumed, and he went free, which raises the question of punishment. When should punishment begin? How intricate should it be? How far should it go before you cross your own border into the self that you do not know yet you are? How young does that journey start? And when do you realize that you are locked within the prison industrial complex? We cannot address the myriad interlocking injustices of a racist prison industrial complex without going to the roots of violence, which start with what we learn. By the start of, fishmongers, of the Fishmongers Hall inquest, in which no one can say how it all went wrong, witness A, MI5, will remain anonymous. The Home Secretary writes in support, seeking to justify reductions of other documents on the grounds of public safety, human rights. The undercover police want to remain anonymous for fear of terror reprisals. The press want the court to deny anonymity to name and shame the former wife of the terrorist, although she hasn't seen her ex for years. They argue this is in the public interest and that her fear of being doorstepped or attacked or her property graffitied never happens except in fiction, as if this case was not more real than the seeking of equality, the desire to remain safe, I mean in the dignity of a human life, in litany, in lament, as a question that even in the face of traumatic violence and our grief, when the linear text cannot but must always represent continuity, can we imagine a different world with the language we have I'm sinking in water as bunny, as pain. I am meant to shape something out of tears. I cannot find a mold for them. All I have is language and trust, the beautiful, hopeful possibilities of those where they meet a hybrid form, hope to spend time with. The text is the carrier that is all this is for, dignity. None of us will survive this. Our only chance is to dismantle it. I want this as I want to love. Do not reconstruct it. Do not reassemble it. Our only chance is to end it. I am talking about harm, the state's harm, the harm that punishes us before we are born, for the idea of us, our races and religions, for our class and genders, for our, for our audacity in breathing hope as children. I am talking about the dignity of a life, of every life. I am talking about affinity as fiction, as imagination. After backstory and event, there is a curve to consider. To be imagined is a kind of violence without the memory of true condition, of fiction as radical action, which is not fiction, it is hope. Just take a moment. I mean that. Just let it land. Thank you both.
I had a, a number of thoughts in the time leading up to this. Um, and I think they've been confirmed by your readings. Um, I suppose this is kind of the moment where I sort of say what I think is going on and the connection that I'm trying to draw between these two writers in this work. Um, so let me just do that very briefly. Um, very simply put, I wanted to move from Zafar's sense of the word as a material object, the, the sense that the cenotaph, for instance, right, can stand in for the letter I, which leads to the in, which leads to the ing, which is this kind of fundamental material value of language. Does that, does that make sense, right? That words are actually stuff, right? They have, they have real material uh, tactility almost. So if I've established that, or if these writers have established that, then the second question comes, which is, what do you do with this material? What do you build? And the purpose behind requesting the glossary, I think, was to show how these institutions that we all exist inside of and which form so much of our identities, right? These institutions are built out of language. And when, um, when you said that um, radicalization has wide definitions, right? And I think we're all conscious of how that works. Um, shifting goalposts in discourse, right? Oh, what is radical, what isn't? Um, that liquidity of language is itself the seat of power, right? That's why they guard it so jealously. And that's why we need poets, right? It's unmooring meaning a little bit. To get from atrocity to atrocity, to see the city in the word is the purpose. To, to find the XGL in the middle, right? As Zafar says, words have pockets. They have their own interiority, right? It's the same power addressed to a different agenda. This is the trick. If you want things to change, and this is the lesson, I hope, then you have to change things. And the thing you can change, all of us have this, is your language, right? Think hard about the words you're using, right? Watch your language, that's what I'm fond of saying these days. And see what you can change with it. This isn't a question, it's a statement. I, want to, I just wanted to share that with you. Um, thank you. Thank you, Zafar. Thank you, Fiti. Thank you. Um, we are approaching the hour. Um, I, I wonder if this is a good place to leave it. I think we should leave it there, unless you have final thoughts. I'm gonna. I'm gonna leave the last word to our guest. Feel like an hour. <laughs> yeah, I know. Went by pretty quick. I think oh, actually, we have almost 10 minutes. Okay. That's very fast. <laughs> We're going to keep going. We're going to keep yeah. going, folks. Okay. Let's, let's, um, did, so, Zafar, I'll, I'll just ask you for your thoughts as, as, um, as we were listening to Preeti's work and any connections you might want to um, make between the two. Uh, well, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I'm here as a poet, really, and, and I suppose... You know, I talk about the word in a lot, and, and for me, poetry is a way into something, and, and sometimes it can be a way into big, big subjects, and, you know, and we all live in a big world, and big things happen in the big world, and, but, you know, I have sometimes small ways into that, but it doesn't mean that there any, it doesn't mean that it's not a door to anything less big, but I wouldn't necessarily call the door a big door, I would, 
you know, just going to wherever, wherever my, you know, way in, in is. And, and when I have a theme, I tend to have another theme as well, and there's another theme as well, and another theme, and they all live together, really. I don't separate the themes out, whether it's nature or language or belonging or, you know, and, you know, you mentioned Guantanamo Bay, you know, I, I, one of the people there went to my school, Marazinberg, um, and, you know, I might not say that in my work, um, but, you know, that there's a, it's part, part of the world that the work lives in. And there's that word in again. Hmm. Um, so, yes. Um, I mean, you know, when I listen to you read and I hear the chiming sounds, you know, in this question we're thinking about in-ness and we can have incarcerate but there's an intimacy that comes in, into that incarceration we're locked in a, in a prison of language that we can break out of through these little doors that you offer and you know when people, people who know about prison they know the intimacy of prison life um, the routine that that gives people of, uh, and it's a tyranny as well as a kind of security um, Doing writing in those environments opens that world up into their into imaginational space as well, which is something we cannot police. It's something that cannot be locked down, no matter how much the state might want to dissolve humanities education from the school system or or, or erase um, imperial history from the from the history books and so on. Um, the, Watching people of any age, of any background, and in any situation take on the puzzle of language for themselves offers a liberation. And it's not necessarily what is produced, it's in the process. Wow, yes. <laughs> oh my dear. Elsewhere in Aftermath, um, Preeti writes, what does the Atro City fear above all? the dissolving of distinctions that would separate the inside from the outside. In and out structures your work um, in England's green. I can hear the in in the prison now, thanks mm. to your attention to the so, sonic. It's also you were talking about pain and pani. Yeah. Pani is you know, both of our father's words for water. water. And in English, that would be, as you know, the same letters when you say that in the book, you know, P-A-N-I, so you get, you get the pain, and, and which is almost, almost you get prison as well, don't you? And That's right, and water is a theme in your work in this kind of, in a way, and it's a really big theme in partition history because, and the way it runs into aftermath because um, the partition line that divided the subcontinent of India into what is now India and Pakistan was divided the canal system and the water resources were privileged onto the Indian side, which later on necessitated the building of the Mangla Dam in what is the Pakistan side or Azad Kashmir. Azad is like free Kashmir or you know Pakistan um, part of Kashmir. And this, in this territory where the Mangla Dam was built, obviously it didn't get built in a wasteland. It got built displacing hundreds of thousands of people, Mirpuris, um, who formed the biggest population of British Pakistanis. That is a little piece of water history of this flow. And this, again, flow of migration becomes terrorizing to the population's imagination in this country. Um, as if rivers of blood, and we remember as well that Enoch Powell spent time in India, and the idea of rivers of blood came from his experience of partition, and then he brought that language to England. In the same year, my parents came here, um, you know, and they didn't just wake up one morning like Mirpuri Pakistanis did not decide to come to England in search of a better life. They came because there was a labour shortage mm. to take to take jobs in the Midlands, not very far from here, and across this region, so that is why. And then this water, this bunny. Yeah, and it's also, the, 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 talking about water, you've got the Indus as well, which is where the word India comes from. And, yeah. Um, which is 
you know, in, which is in Pakistan, you know, the Indus. And, uh, uh, but yeah, India takes its name, which shows how mixed up the whole thing is. Um, and my father is one of, you know, I was talking about this poem that was third prize in the National Poetry Competition. It's called Hill Speak. And um, that's the nearest translation to my father's language, but um, it has the word Mirpuri in it, which is another possible word for the language. But, but so my father is from the same part. It's not near, it's not, uh, his land wasn't covered by the, by the dam water, um, it, 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 but he's part of that community. And right. he, you know, um, so in the 60s, a lot of people came over, um, but all the, a lot of the people in Birmingham and Bradford especially, who tend to be poorer and right. you know, work in things like taxi driving, that they, they are from this, but you know, and so I was very proud to put the word Mirpuri into a favor book. Mm. Right, because it means something. And one, the piece that I did not say, which is the missing piece, is that Usman Khan's family is Mirpuri. So the reason why, and he was born in a working class Stoke-on-Trent, um, with, with all of the sort of deprivations of dignity that are structural, um, as well as the potential for then that word to mm. travel into favor, the annals of these beautiful elitist publications. And I think that's, that sense of elitism, that sense of flow is kind of what's at stake here, right? There's the inside and the outside, but in the middle, or the, the, the thing that exists outside of that binary, and I think that's what's getting explored in a lot of ways, is the sense of flow, that you're neither in nor out, that those distinctions dissolve, right? right? And that's true liberation. Right? That's what I'm pulling most valuably out of, I think, what's happening right now. Um, so, so let's not fall for those false binaries of thought, but instead be comfortable in the flux and the flow of things. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, my goodness. Okay. <laughs> let's now, okay, that says five o'clock. My watch says about three minutes too. How are we doing for time? Has anyone got a more official sense of things? A couple of minutes? I think we can leave it there. With flow, right? And with a, a refreshed sense of our own liberation through language and our attention to it. So finally, one more time, please thank our guests. <laughs>